0: Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2 is going to be our text this morning. If you have a hard time finding this book, just go to the book of Matthew and then go back three books. Haggai is a really tiny book, so it's, it can be easily lost. Haggai chapter 2. I'm going to start our morning by reading the entire chapter so that we can know where we are headed. Haggai chapter 2. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, the governor governor of Judah, and to Joshua of Jehosadak, the high priest, and to the remnants of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, The high priests and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse ten. On the twenty fourth of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries a holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy?" And the priest answered, "No." Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will be unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this Day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time, when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only ten. And when one came to, wine vat, to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would be only twenty. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, that has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Then the, Lord, then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel." My servant declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Lord, we're thankful for this privilege to be able to study your word again. Uh, May it impact our lives in a practical way, and may it change our thoughts and our hearts to be more aligned with you and your word. Thank you for this time, in your son's name, amen. Life is filled with discouragements. Living in a Genesis 3 world, you must expect discouragement. Living east of Eden or in a fallen world, discouragement is bound to come. For some of you, your health is declining. You've perhaps visited a doctor recently, and the doctor has given you a bad result. And now you have to deal with the realities of living with failing health. For some of you, you're struggling with your marriage. There seems to be this never-ending conflict between you and your spouse and you wonder whether or not you'll ever be able to enjoy being with your spouse again and every conflict seems to bring up dif- more and more discouragement for some of you who are parents you are raising your kids and it is difficult to raise them They're constantly disobeying you, and they are out of control. They're actively rebelling against you. And it seems like every single day that passes can be a discouragement to you. Some of you are single, and you're struggling with loneliness. You're trying your best to find a significant other and a spouse, but it does not seem like it's going to come to pass. These issues are just the realities of living in a fallen world. And this doesn't just apply to believers, but it applies to all, all people on the earth, both believers and non-believers. But for the believers, it's doubly hard to live in this fallen world because not only are you dealing with the life circumstances, but you're also dealing with internal sin. You're wrestling with your own sin. You want to overcome temptation. You want to break the pattern of sin in your life, and you're dealing with things that's inside and outside of your life. For some, you want to be a good testimony to your non-believing friends and family, You're, and you feel like just the overwhelming pressure of constantly being watched. And it is true that it is at times difficult to be a light in a fallen world. In light of everything that's going on in your life, you may be discouraged. But yet no matter how bad things are in your life, for the Christian, there is always hope. That's my hope for us this morning, that when we look through this text, that you find your hope in the Lord. And and the way that we do that is we consider the destiny that we have in Christ. That we consider the future destiny that we have in the Lord. Life is hard. And if you want to know how to endure it, consider your destiny that is given to you in Christ. And we're going to do that by looking at three truths. Three truths that you must consider that will help you focus on the the destiny that you have in the Lord. Our outline this morning is three points. The first is consider the promises of God in the past. Second, we're going to consider the purity God expects in the present. And lastly, we'll consider the power of God in the future. The first point, consider the promises of God made in the past. Look at verse 1. On the 21st... Of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnants of the people. Verse 1 happens about one month after chapter 1. And just a quick review of what happened in chapter 1. I preached chapter 1 a year ago. So you might have forgotten all the details, and that's totally fine. Just, if you want to figure out all the little details, just go back to our website, scroll down a year, and you'll find this sermon. It's called Consider Your Ways. In the, in the context of this book, the, this is the post-exilic text, meaning that uh, they were once at one point in Israel. They were, because of their sin, because of their disobedience to the Lord, God removed them from the land. Uh, You know, in the last few years, Pastor Henry has been preaching through the book of Isaiah. And in that book, it highlights that God will send judgment for their sin, but he also promises a way for them to be made right with them. In in the book of Isaiah, it also makes this prophecy about this king named Cyrus that's going to bring the people back into the land. And that's what happened. Uh, uh, Years later, uh, there's one king by the name of Cyrus who brought Israel back into the land, and he gave them a, a piece of property. He tells them that you can go and build your temple again, and the Israelites did. They started the temple, and in chapter 1, they began building it, but then they became discouraged because of all the opposition from the outside world. From all the Gentiles outside, they were um, basically challenging them, and they became discouraged, and they stopped working on the temple, and they became spiritually apathetic. They stopped building, they start using the resources that they have and start using it on themselves and start indulging in the things that the Lord provided. So the Lord, in chapter 1, sends Haggai to confront them. He confronts them on their spiritual apathy, and he tells them to repent of their ways. And they did. They stopped. Uh, they, they, they repented of their spiritual apathy, and they continue working on the temple. Chapter 2 begins one month after that. And it was in this one-month period. That the Israelites were working and diligently laboring in the temple, and they are discouraged. They are looking at what they're building, and they cannot fathom what they've done, and they're sad about what the, the results of their work. Because one month later, God tells Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel, uh, Joshua, and the Remnant's people. And he asks them three questions. Look at verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in, the, in its former glory? So amongst the, pe- the remnants that has, that has returned, he's talking to a specific group of people. He's asking this small group of people, do you remember what the old temple was like? Now, I would imagine the people that were there were the older saints, the older Israelites. These people at the time, this, around this time, was like 80-something years ago, was when the temple was destroyed. So around 80 years, or 80-something years ago, the oldest person there might have been at most a teenager, They might have remembered what the temple was like. They might have been there because of all of the Jewish festivals. And they might remember, yeah, the old temple was great. It was really grand. They may not have all the little details. They may not know every little specific thing about the temple. But the, the vibe that they got when they were in that old temple was that this is a place of worship. This is the place that God dwelt. And now they look at this new temple that they're building. And it's nothing compared to the old one look at the second question that they ask and how do you see it now another way asking this is just look at this temple and what does it look like to you does this compare to what it was like before and then the last question does it not seem like nothing in comparison and that's discouraging right can you imagine all the things that you're working on and god is saying the thing that you're working on now it's nothing compared to what it was before and this is a reminder to all of the Israelites of how far they have fallen. This is a reminder of where, uh, where they are at now compared to where they were. Now, what's interesting is in Ezra chapter 3, another post exilic book in the Bible, it talks about how the young people, when they were building this temple, and the, old people, all the young and old people were building this temple together, and the young people were rejoicing. They were building this, and they looked at it, and they're like, Yay, praise the Lord! But the, old, the elderly people, the people that were there, they wept. Because they remember what it was like before. And even more interesting, in Ezra chapter 6, it gives us the, the diameters of the temple. And if you compare this diameter to the previous temple, the one that Solomon built, this new temple is actually bigger. It's higher in terms of uh, from floor to ceiling, and it's bigger in terms of land mass. So, why is that even though they have a bigger temple, bigger foundation to build the temple, that they are discouraged? Well, it's because they lacked the things that made the temple special. If you were a Gentile just walking by and you looked at this temple, you would just think that it would just be a group of people building something for some other God. You wouldn't think to yourself, this is the, the place where the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings dwell. This temple did not have the precious metals. This this temple did not have all the the grand designs. This temple did not have the Ark of the Covenant. This temple did not have the the fabric to to build the clothing for the priests. And this temple was not built with the same skill set, did not have the same wisdom of, of Solomon. But the worst thing is that the glory of God is not in this temple. Even though they had a bigger temple, it was a hollow shell of what it was in the past. And this realization caused them to be discouraged. And they wonder, what are we doing? Why do we need to work so hard if this is nothing compared to the past? And God tells them in verse 4 but now take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. Some of you may be discouraged by your current state. You're looking at your life, and you look looking back with such fondness. Remember, and, you look at, and you're comparing what it was life like before and what life is like now, and you're thinking life back then was so much better. And that may be true that you're under dire circumstance now, but remember to be encouraged because God is with you. Verse 5, As for the promise which I have made you when you came out of Egypt... My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. God reminds his people of the promise that he made all the way back in the Exodus. He reminds them that before you leave Egypt, I am with you. You do not need to fear. God's promise for them then is the same as now, that he will always be with them. When Haggai was speaking to the Israelites, they thought that God has left them and God has forsaken them. But Haggai reminds them, no, that's not the case because God is with you. He, the words and promises he made in the past still is active today. God promised them that he will never leave them or forsake him. Notice that it said, be, take courage. This is the same word that's used in Joshua chapter one when God tells Joshua to be bold and courageous. Before they were to go into the land, the promised land and, t- and remove the Canaanites, they were scared and God told them to be courageous bold and courageous for he is with them he will go and fight for them and you'll notice at the end of verse 5 do not fear this is the same word as used in isaiah chapter 41 verse 10 which reads do not fear for i am with you do not anxiously look for i am your god i will strengthen you surely i will help you Surely I will, I will hold you with my righteous right hand. When you look back at your life, there'll be moments where you think, oh, this, the past is great. And that may be true, but the greatest thing that happened to you in the past is what Christ has done for you on the cross. Just like the Israelites need to remind you of how they were delivered from the bondage of sin, so too that we need to remind that we were uh, delivered from the bondage of sin israelites were free from bondage of slavery and we were f- delivered from the bondage of sin looking back at the most important moments gives us courage look at verse 6 for thus says the lord of hosts once more in a little while i am going to shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry lands god assures them by reminding them of his wonderful and powerful acts in the past the power that god has shown To free the Israelites from the Egyptians. He will show again the power that God has shown when when he parted the Red Sea. He will show it again. The power that God has shown in providing and protecting the Israelites in the wilderness, he will demonstrate it again. And every other time from then until now, he will demonstrate his power. And he will show this power one more time in the future by shaking all of reality. And when that moment comes, every nation will know that the God of israel is the one true god god will once more in the future fight for his name fight for his glory and he will fight for his people god will shake every aspect of reality again this is not new to the the authors to, to the book of haggai in psalm 77 18 psalm write, the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind the lightning lit up the world the earth trembled and shook Jeremiah 10.10. But the Lord is the true God. He is a living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Jeremiah 51.29. So the land quakes and reads, For the purpose of the Lord against Babylon stand, to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitants. Living in California... There's always this potential reality of the big one coming. Right, We're on the San Andreas Fault. In fact, I got mail from the insurance saying, you need to buy earthquake insurance because the big one is coming. And that may be true that the big one is coming. But whatever the big one comes, it's nothing. It's just a mere tremor compared to what God will do when he returns. Verse 7, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. God will shake the world, and the nations will bring back these precious metals that they were lacking. Remember, they were discouraged because they did not have the materials that made the temple special. And God is saying that, I will provide that for you. I will shake the nations, and the nations will bring these things to you all of things that made the first temple great will be brought to them. God is going to bring the materials that they need to demonstrate his power and his glory. And this prophecy is throughout scripture. The God will reign in his temple after he wrecks the wicked nations of the world. After he demonstrates his power, many will come to believe in the one true God. Look at verse nine. The latter glory of this house be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God reminds them of the promise that He has made to them in the past. God did this to keep them from discouragement He's reminding them of what will happen is to allow them to be encouraged so that they could continue working what they are doing you know they're in dire. even though this seems really dire, it's all part of God's sovereign plan. He wants the Israelites who are sad about what they were working on now to turn from their sorrow and anticipate God fulfilling his promises. God will fill the temple and only then will there be peace. Last week, Pastor Henry preached on Isaiah 60 and this is what he mentioned, that one day the glory will return into the temple. It will be a light to the world and the whole world will see that that israel is a place where god dwells everyone will go to that land and they will worship god in this temple isaiah was written a long time before haggai and yet you can see the continuity of scripture that god keeps his promise and god will fulfill it god's word cannot be broken and this temple this is sad because the temple that they're working on now we see in the new testament that uh that it will eventually be destroyed that this temple is the temple that was there when Jesus dwelt among them. Jesus, uh, when he, when he took, made the little whip and whipped the people out of the temple, is this exact temple. This temple will be destroyed. And we know in history that it was destroyed in 70 A.D. But this promise in verse 9 will not be realized until Christ's second coming. Christ will reign in this temple and it will be greater than the first temple This next temple is actually going to be a temple that you and I will be able to see. This is something that we will be able to enjoy as well. God's promise in the past is something that you and I can look forward to. God's promise to his people is for both Jews and Gentiles. And all of God's people will see this and they will experience the peace of Christ when he reigns. But until then, work hard. When you are discouraged in life, remember that God has made promises to you through his word that no matter how difficult things are in this life, God's word will be fulfilled. And this is the paradox of Christian work. The things that you're working on now will perish, but the, but, but the blessings of the why you do it and the motive and how you do it will, ha- will reap eternal rewards. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about how we will receive eternal rewards by our faithful, faithfulness to the Lord. God tells that God reminds us that all the things that we do have eternal significance. Now, if you're a non believer, your work is indeed insignificant. If you're non Christians, all that you do is vain and it will perish. And you too will perish if you do not turn from your sins. All that non believers do is empty and vain. And for the Christians, we have hope. If we are to be faithful, And if we're faithful to the Lord, God is pleased with it, and he will reward us for our faithfulness. So if you're a parent right now, and you're discouraged by your kids, continue parenting. Continue to be faithful. Know that the things that seem very monotonous, God knows it, and he's going to reward you for your faithfulness. If you're a student, if you're a student and you are studying, it seems like, oh, there's another paper, another exam, another homework assignment Do it for the glory of God. The Lord sees how you're studying and the Lord knows how you are as a student. He will bless you for your faithfulness. If you're working and and you're clocking in and clocking out, it just seems like you're just working yourself to death, know that your work has eternal significance, that God sees your faithfulness and he will bless you one day. Not only can we overcome discouragement in our lives by considering God's promise made in the past, But secondly, consider also the purity that God expects in the present. Another way for us to fight discouragement is is to consider the purity that God expects in the present. Verse 10, on the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying... Now you notice that there's another time stamp here. This this one here is two months after the last sermon. Chapter 2 was one month after... Chapter 1 and this verse 10 is two months after after that event. And the difference be, uh, between that sermon and this one is this. In the first sermon, chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 2, they were discouraged and they needed God to give them uh, encouragement so that they can continue working in the temple. When we get to two months later, when we get to this point of the text, somehow in between, the Israelites start harvesting sin in their own lives. They started holding on to sin, even though they were working on the temple. And God is here to rebuke them again. Look at verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priest for a ruling. Now this is intimidating. If you're a priest, God is giving you a pop quiz. He's saying, hey, bring the priest to me. I need to ask them for a ruling. And God asked Haggai to bring the priest over so that he can ask them about some scenarios to see if they knew, if they truly know God's word. Now, interestingly, the priests are uh, called—it's interesting that the priests are called because the priests are supposed to be people who know God's word. They're supposed to teach God's word, they're supposed to preserve God's word, and they're supposed to execute God's word. The priests not only perform all of the animal sacrifices, but they're also the keepers and interpreters of divine law. The priests are supposed to govern the spiritual matters of Israel. They were supposed to be the ones to discern if a person's action is sinful and defiled. And, he, and the Lord said, "Ask now." This is has a legal, is a legal uh, flavor to it. So he asked them. He asked them these two questions in these two different scenarios. Look at verse twelve. If a man carries holy meat in, in, in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And they answered, "No." And if. Uh, consecrated meat is a specific meat that's designated for the lord that god has told the israelites that there's only certain types of meat that's, that's that's acceptable to god and they have this and he's asking them if this holy meat if this meat that's designed and designated for god touches something else touches some other food does the other food become holy and the priest answered correctly they said no in verse 13 he asked another question and then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. God gives them a second scenario. If someone does touched a corpse, which at the time is considered the greatest way to be contaminated. In fact, in Numbers it's described that when you touch a dead body, you cannot even celebrate the Passover. When you, If you touch a, bed, a body, you have, you have to be separated and, and be clean before you can enter back in. This is all in Leviticus 21 and 22. And God asked them if a person who touches corpse touches these objects again, the same type of objects that the holy object touched, will these objects become unclean? And, he, and the priest answered correctly yes, it will become unclean. What is the point of this? In the first scenario, you see that holiness is not transferable. When there's a holy object that touches certain objects, those things that it touches does not become holy. And on the flip side, when something that's unclean touches something, it does become unclean. This is supposed to show Israelites their spiritual condition. Look at verse 14. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hand, and what they offer there is unclean. God calls them this people and this nation. This is, again, God disconnecting himself from who these people are. How they live does not live up and is not in par with people that call themselves covenant keepers. God said, so is every work of their hands, and what they offer is unclean. All that they were doing is unclean, even though they were building the temple, even though outwardly they seemed to be doing what is right. Perhaps some of these Israelites, after the last sermon, became proud. They said, oh, God's going to provide all this for us. He's going to shake the nations so I don't need to worry about my own sin. I just keep working on it, and then it fulfills God's plan. Another passage of scripture seems implied that the sin that they held to was that they married into other nations. They they, they took foreign wives as wives, the foreign nations' wives as, as their own wives. It was just ironic because the reason why the temple fell was because the kings before them married onto married other women, married foreign wives, and their hearts were turned away from the Lord. So they're rebuilding the temple because of kings. In the past, then was the love of four women, and then they're doing it again themselves. They fail to see the cycle that they're in. Whatever it may be, God confronts them. God confronts them on their sin. These Israelites assume that if they do the right things outwardly, that they are good with God. But yet God is not fooled. He knows their sinful condition, which means that all that they were doing is considered impure in his eyes. I have a six-week-old little baby, and she poops a lot. And I have to clean her a lot. And one of the things I notice when I clean her is that when I use the baby wipes and I wipe her bottom and try to wipe the poo away, that the the baby wipe becomes unclean. It's defiled. I have to throw this away after I'm done with it. And you know what else happens? Her poop doesn't become clean just because I wipe it with a clean cloth. This is the same kind of idea what the israelites were going through they thought that if they had something good and holy if they're doing something great that if that that they don't have to worry about their own sin the israelites were already contaminated with sin so no matter what type of holy work that they that they think they're doing they cannot be cleansed from it the israelites while building this temple are trying to reform their lives without reforming their own heart let me ask you what about you do you as a non-Christian think that you can just somehow catch holiness by being part of a church? Do you think that by going to church you're somehow that somehow the, the 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 holiness of other people can be rubbed up onto you? Do you think that just because you give or that you do things for the church that that automatically makes you holy? You cannot catch holiness. You can only be It can only be given to you through Christ. And when you believe you're completely changed from being completely defiled in God's eyes to being made completely holy in God's eyes. Holiness cannot be transferred, but you can only be holy if you are transformed. Holiness cannot be transferred, but you can only be holy if you're transformed. That means you need a new birth, that God has to make you new again from the inside out. For others who are saved, some of you might think, well, if I'm doing all of the ministry in the church, that I do not need to fight sin in my own life. A person might think, well, I'm evangelizing to people. I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with all of my non-believing friends and family. That means I don't have to deal with my own sin. Well, that's not true. Some might think, well, I'm doing this ministry. I'm ministering to the kids. I'm ministering to the college students. I'm ministering to the adults. I'm ministering to the elderly people. Surely all of the things that I've done merits holiness. No, God is not fooled. He is not pleased when you try to do church while harvesting sin in your own life. Remember, years down line from the time when Haggai was written, the people that were like this were the Pharisees. They thought that doing all of the right rituals will make them holy, but God calls them whitewashed tombs, that they are empty. They're dead on the inside. God is never pleased with what you're doing on the outside if your hearts are latched on to sin. You know, if this is you here today, put off the ministry. Just quit the the ministry that you're part of. Go to the Lord and repent. Turn from your sin. Cast off your sin first because God doesn't need you for ministry, but he expects you to be holy. Verse 15. But now do consider from this day onward before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. He's making them think back about what they were, uh, they think back about their lives. He wants them to take deep thoughts and deep consideration. He wants them to strongly consider all of the things that they don't have. Verse 16 tells them about how they were to look at all their their results. It's kind of like their storage, and you see that there's there's a lacking in it, it's not as much as they used to have. And that's supposed to show them that God is disciplining them. Throughout the Old Testament, God has always said that if they were faithful, that they will have abundance, that there would be a, they, will, they, they will not be lacking anything. So the fact that they see that there's less stuff, that, uh, less of their approaches, less of the results of their work, is supposed to remind them that they're being disciplined by God. God's disciplining hand is, is obvi- it's supposed to be obvious to them, but they were completely oblivious to it. Now, before we scoff and laugh about th- these Israelites, understand that this happens to us as well. When Every time when we look at God's word, we see his commandments. It tells us, when it tells us to, con- to repent of specific sins or to turn from a certain way and we fail to do it, even though it's obvious in scripture, it shows that we are oblivious to what God wants. We're oblivious to his words. Verse 17 I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me. God said that he was the one that went against them. He was the one who struck their labors. God withheld their success by controlling the weather which was needed for them to grow crops. It was supposed to be a wake-up call. They were supposed to look at their produce and, and consider, is there some sort of sin in my life? Why is God withholding blessings from me? God gave them a condition that caused them not to succeed in their work, yet they still fail to turn from their sin and fail to turn back to God. God disciplined his children, but he does not cast them out. Look at verse 18. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranates, and the olive tree. It has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. God asked them to look at the barns, see all the stuff that they have that's left, and how little that they have left. They're looking at things like the vines, which is supposed to produce grape, which you know produces wine. They're the figs, they're used to make cake. Uh, The pomegranate are generally used for specific dyes and unique dyes. And olives are used for cooking and to have fuel for their lamps. This is essentially all of their economy. That if they want to be an economic center for the world, that they need to turn from their sins and God will bless them. All that they needed, all that Israel needed for a stable economy will come if they turn from their sins. Verse 19 here ends with this really hopeful note. He tells them that he will bless them. He will bless them. Their repentance will cause God to work on their behalf. God will give them all that they need if they seek him first. I would argue that one reason why people get discouraged in life and not always, but one of the reasons why they get discouraged is because they're holding on to sin. They're harboring sin in their own life. Some may feel gloom and they not, may not understand why that is, but not realizing that they're, it's because they're harvesting and keeping sin in their own hearts. This means that the more you are like Christ, the more joyful you will be. If you are pursuing holiness, you can expect to be hopeful. But if you're not pursuing holiness... You cannot expect to be hopeful. Holiness allows us to long for Christ. Holiness allows us to be more like Christ. Holiness allows us to be joyful. This is what Christians mean when they say walk in the Spirit. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And if you're in sin, sin corrodes that joy. Example, this was in Psalm 32 when David sinned against Bathsheba. When he sinned, he wrote in Psalm 32 that he, when he kept silent about his sin, his body wasted away, and he was groaning all the days. Sometimes God will use discouragement as a way to reveal sin in your life, and the quicker you are to identify your sin, the quicker you are to receive this joy again. If you want to fight discouragement, fight for holiness— I said earlier that holiness cannot be transferable, but holiness can be pursued. You need to actively pursue holiness, and the Lord will bless you with joy. Not only can we fight discouragements by remembering God's promise in the past and also fighting sin in the present, but lastly, we can fight discouragement in life by considering the power of God in the future. Our last point, consider the power of God in the future. Verse 20, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, "I, say, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Again, if you notice the timestamp here in verse 20 is actually later on in the day from verse 10. A few hours after that first sermon, God sends Haggai to go to Zerubbabel again. It's, it's, he has Zerubbabel in mind. And if you think about it, if you are in Zerubbabel's position, it's kind of intimidating or a blessing depending on how you look at it. You had the sermon earlier about how you need to repent of your sin and then later on that day, God sends the prophet to talk to you specifically. He has a special message for you. Now, if that was me, I would be thinking, okay, I need to confess whatever sin. Maybe I looked at the rock differently. I should have repented of that. I would repent of everything that I can come up with because God has a specific message for you. And God tells Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was a political leader. He was able to represent Jews to the Babylonians. He was the political leader of God's post-exilic community. And Zerubbabel receives a unique message from God. And God tells him that he's going to shake the world. And he's like, okay, yeah, I heard that early this morning. Yeah, I, I agree, amen, great. But notice, Verse 42, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of nations. And I'll overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of, an, of another. Again, this is similar to what he said earlier. So if yours are rubable, you would think, that's great. Amen. When is this going to happen? And notice verse 23. On that day, he's talking about some future, something that's going to happen in the future. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is probably the most important verse in this entire book, and it happens at the very end. This is the climax of the book, that, at the, at that God will keep his promise. He's going to use Zerubbabel, his servant, to fulfill all of these things. Now, if you un- remember, in chapter 1, verse 1, they, and even earlier, they said that they're in the time of Darius. Darius is a Gentile king. He's a Gentile king, and they're under Gentile rule. And at this time, there was no king on the throne that was part of the Davidic line. There was no king because they have all failed in the past, and God has removed them from the land and brought them back into the land, but they still do not have a king. The Jews at the time thought that every one of their kings was supposed to be a messiah. They thought that it would be David, and it didn't happen. They thought it was Solomon, it didn't happen. They thought it was and it didn't happen, and on and on. They thought that every single one of their king was going to bring them back into paradise. But they were wrong. None of them were the Messiah. And notice that God said that he will use Zerubbabel as God's official representative. He's going to use Zerubbabel like a promised ring. A signet ring is the king's most cherished, and prized possession. A, a, a signet ring was supposed to be that anything that, the, the, anything that is sealed with that ring, it is authoritative. That is what the king wants. So if this piece of paper had the seal of the king, that is authoritative. That means that the land is supposed to listen carefully to what this king has to say. So this ring is important. This ring is supposed to show that this is what the king wants. And we know from Scripture that this ring that, uh, that Zerubbabel is talking about, or that God is talking about, is actually the chosen one. It's, it's, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus does fulfill this role. He fulfills this role as the one that does exactly what the Father wants. He does all that the king wants. He and the Father are one. Everything that Jesus does is exactly what the Lord expects. Now, I jumped ahead, a, little ahead, a little bit ahead of myself, but you know that Zerubbabel actually did not become king. He did not become king. The things that he told Zerubbabel did not happen the way that he thought. He did not shake the nations. They're still, at this time, and even down the line, they were still under uh, a foreign country's rule. So does that mean that God lied? The answer is no. So Zerubbabel is unique because he's part of this Davidic line. And we've seen this even in First in and Second Kings, when, uh, in First and Second Samuel as well, when God said that your son will reign forever. It did not mean that their next the next person in line will actually reign forever, right? Solomon died, Rehoboam died. But what God was saying that someone in this Davidic line, he will reign forever. And Zerubbabel at the time was the only, one of the few people that was under this bloodline. And Zerubbabel is unique because he's one of the few people in, that is in both the genealogy of both Joseph and Mary. He's one of the few people that's in both of their lines. Zerubbabel was a representative of this Davidic line and what God is saying that on this day in the future God will keep his promise he will use one of David's descendant and he will reign and be the ring of the Lord he will be this signet ring all the previous kings failed and did not but it does not invalidate the covenant that God has made for his people God's plan will come to pass to both the Israelites then and the Christians now, we both are longing for this day. We all long and are anticipating the day where Christ will reign. So when you feel discouraged, when you are wondering what all this is about, understand that God has something for us in the future. Christ comes, Christ, Christ's first coming gives us the possibility to have new birth that we can be made right before a holy God. Christ's second coming, which is what verse 23 is talking about, is, is him restoring all of creation. You wonder why life is so hard is because there's sin in the world. And when Christ returns and when he reigns in the temple, all of the pain that you feel will be done away with. This is a promise for all those who believe in him. We will see this future come to pass one day, and we will receive the blessings that comes with it. We will see God's glory fill the temple, and we will see Jesus reign. And and when that happens, all of our pain, all of our suffering will be done away with. And the the end of Revelation, it it describes how every tear will be wiped away. And I know some of you have been going through different afflictions to varying degrees and you are probably weeping whether inside or externally and god knows your pain but remember that this your life is headed to a better place there is a for us when we mean that you go to better place it is true that there is paradise for us who believe in him if you want to fight discouragement in this difficult life consider the destiny that you have in christ Consider the promise that he's made in the past. Consider that he loved us before the foundations of the world. That he died and he rose again so that one day we too can rise again. Consider also the the present moment where you you have to strive for holiness so that you can continue maintaining the joy that you have in the Lord. And lastly, consider that God's power will take place in the future and he'll usher in paradise for those who've turned from their sin and placed their faith in Him. Remember that your life, this short, brief life, no matter how much turmoil it is, it is moving towards somewhere, it is moving towards heaven. And if you are a believer, you are being moved toward this future the future where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, and that we can worship and see Christ face to face. If you feel discouraged and you may be in pain, but God's word promises that that pain will one day come to an end. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and the promises um, in it. We're glad that it's because of your grace and mercy that we're able to have this future. Lord, for the brothers and sisters that are suffering now, remind them of the future that they have. Remind them that this life is short and that they need to glorify all, glorify you with all that they do. Lord, I do pray for the people here that claim to be Christians that are living in sin, that think that they could hide their sin because of all the ministry that they do, that you would convict them of their sin, that you let them see how you desire pure vessels to be used for your glory. And Lord, I know there are some here who have not received you I pray, Lord, that you can soften their heart to the gospel, knowing that the promises of blessing for the believer is is good, but the promises of those who reject you is horrifying. Soften their hearts to the gospel, Lord. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.